Coming up on Tech Nation, journalist Maria Godovich. You might remember her books, Soldier Dogs and Secret Service Dogs. Now she has one for the rest of us, Dr. Dogs, how our best friends are becoming our best medicine. And ever wonder why those popular genetic tests don't say you definitely will get a particular medical condition, but rather they cite a likelihood, a probability. It's not the lawyers, it's science. Dr. Tara Nickerson from Mays Therapeutics explains it all and how their work is hoping to lead us to new therapies in the future. All this coming up on this week's Tech Nation. Let's take five with Moira Gunn. This is Five Minutes. In a 2013 Tech Nation interview, ESPN investigative journalist Mark Fainaru Wada talks about the incidence of repeated brain trauma to professional football players. In journalism, we ask, what did you know? When did you know it? And what did you do when you found out? That, in a nutshell, reflects his book, League of Denial, the NFL, Concussions, and the Battle for Truth. Yeah, it is. That's, I mean, when, when Steve and I set out to sort of embark on this project, that was exactly what we, we sort of were after, was what did the NFL know and when did it know it? Um, we were struck to find out that they'd known a lot for two decades, really, and, and seemed to rather than embrace the, the science, um, in many cases seem to bury it as, as scientists emerge, sort of raising warnings to them about the connection between football and possible brain damage. I think it's interesting. There was a lot of incredibly good reporting that had been done over the years on this topic, for sure. And, and um, you know, the, the New York Times had done some fantastic work. Colleagues of ours at ESPN, um, GQ had done a couple of fantastic pieces on the subject. But it really wasn't until 2010 when Congress actually got involved in the process, called the NFL to the Hill, and really rake them over the coals. It's that point, I think, that the level of awareness really ratchets up. And then I, I think for us, what was interesting was to see that while you had all this reporting that had been done, there was so much out there that hadn't really been focused on around about what the NFL actually knew, when it knew it, and how it had dealt with that information once it had it. Well, I was so surprised to hear that they had a mild traumatic brain injury committee since 1994. That year is called the year of the concussion in the NFL. There's a number of high-profile players who have concussions. A couple of players have retired prematurely because of concussions. So there's a large sort of growing sense of awareness around concussions in the NFL. And at, at one point during that time, the commissioner of the league, Paul Tagliabue, is at the, the 92nd Street Y in New York. He's being interviewed by the fantastic journalist David Halberstam. Halberstam starts asking him about this issue of concussions in football. And there's just a great scene where... Tagliabue basically dismisses it entirely, and he says, so this is a media-created issue. This is really not a problem. And he starts sort of trotting out statistics that the NFL has that there's maybe one concussion every three games, and Halberstam stops him in the middle, and, and Halberstam has come back from Vietnam and covering and hearing the press you know, get fed these statistics about Vietnam, and he, and he gives this line about feeling like he's back in, in Vietnam, hearing the numbers from, uh, um, from the, from the there U.S. Are military. There people in the country. It can't yeah, be yes. <laughs> and and he, there's just roars at the 92nd Street Y. But that's the context in which this MTBI committee is formed. And, you know, the commissioner puts the head of that committee, uh, a gentleman named Elliot Pellman. And that really reflects 
his attitude in that meeting with Halberstam and then appointing this guy, Elliot Pellman, who is not at all a specialist in brains. He's a a rheumatologist. He's a rheumatologist, exactly. And so that, I think, reflected the mentality of the league at the time when it went after this issue of concussions in the sport. This committee ended up producing 16 different research papers on the issue of concussions in the NFL. And for a period of time, they produced a couple of papers that were well-received in the research community. But eventually that committee, when it got to paper number three, suddenly began to produce a series of papers that sent the message that concussions were not a big deal in the NFL. And time and time again, every paper they produced sent that message. And the interesting thing about all of that research was it ended up in one singular journal. The editor-in-chief of that journal was a guy named Mike Apuzo, a neurosurgeon from USC who also happened to be a consultant to the New York Giants football team. So you had this guy working with the NFL, letting papers be published time and time again that were saying concussions are not a big deal in the NFL. This 2013 Tech Nation interview with ESPN investigative journalist Mark Finaruwada featured his book, League of Denial, The NFL, Concussions, and the Battle for Truth. For his reporting, Mark went on to receive a George Polk Award, the Dick Schapp Award for Outstanding Journalism, and the Associated Press Sports Editor Award. League of Denial was made into a frontline documentary, which itself was awarded a Peabody. I'm Moira Gunn. This is 5 Minutes. 5 Minutes is produced at the studios of KQED-FM in San Francisco. 5 Minutes is a production of Tech Nation Media. I'm Paul Lancourt. From San Francisco, I'm Moira Gunn, and this is Tech Nation. Today on Tech Nation, science looks at the amazing capabilities of the average dog's nose, and a whole crowd of people seem to be trying to make good use of it. Journalist Maria Godavage joins me to talk about Dr. Dogs, how our best friends are becoming our best medicine. Then Dr. Tara Nickerson from Maze Therapeutics talks about their efforts to figure out why some of our genes protect others and how this knowledge can lead to new therapies. Well, Maria, welcome to Tech Nation. Thanks. I'm happy to be here. Now, human illness or anything organic, even bacteria, they all give off scents or odors or, I guess, VOCs? Yeah, volatile organic compounds are the name of the game. And the dogs that are in my book, Dr. Dogs, are sniffing these out around the world. They are basically things that the odors that come off, the compounds that come off of almost anything. And dogs are being trained to scent the ones that are important to 
to us. So they, but they do smell a whole lot of stuff that don't. we don't. Yeah. E- even when each of us are in peak condition. Yeah. <laughs> There's no way we can compete with dogs. They have about, we have about 6 million olfactory receptors. They have about 300 million, um, up to 300 million, I should say. They, they should don't... want to take a shower just to please you. <laughs> oh, no, they prefer that you don't. Uh, we shed <laughs> skin cells all over the place, and that's how they can track us and know where we are. We're constantly shedding all kinds of things. But um, the dogs can smell in parts per trillion, which is about a tablespoon of a substance in the size of two Olympic swimming pools. They smell, like, picture your visual world. We can see everything. That's our richest sense. Dogs, that's all about their olfaction. Their their world is rich and vivid when they're sniffing. And for me, that gives me a reason to sort of stop with my dog and let him sniff. Someone at University of Pennsylvania says that dogs can sniff in color. And I love that notion that dogs have this world that we're not clued into at all. So when we're asking them to smell something for us, we know we're in really good hands. Now, it's not just dogs that can be trained to smell. It's also that humans can smell things that actually tell us that there's a problem. I'm thinking of the woman in England and Parkinson's. That's a fascinating story. Yeah, she had a husband who had Parkinson's, and she approached some scientists at a conference for Parkinson's and asked them, why is it that people with Parkinson's have this musty, musky odor? And they all looked at her like, she was crazy. (laughs) (laughs) And then they started, apparently they had conversations about this conversation with her and they brought her in. Eventually they did some testing with her and she was able to detect on the t-shirts of 12 people with Parkinson's, well, 12 people. Um, She, she got 11 people right. And um, it turns out that the 12th person didn't have Parkinson's at the time, but the next year, was diagnosed with Parkinson's. She already could smell it. She nailed it. it. Yes, and actually she was the inspiration for some dogs up in Washington State, some people in Washington State, to start something with dogs up there so they can see if they can detect Parkinson's early. So there are a bunch of dogs on San Juan Island who are up there sniffing T-shirts of people with Parkinson's. The goal is to detect Parkinson's at its earliest stages so that maybe there can be you know, earlier mitigation of the disease than there is now. Now, we're talking about the fact that we can train dogs for particular scents out of all these gazillion billion that they can. And I can kind of see how you do that, you know, just sort of uh, without taking any engineering or scientific uh, uh, insight into that. But how do they do it? How do they do that in these cases where they're, they're very specific sense that you might not get just anywhere. Right. And the, and the scientists obviously don't know what these scents are. So it's not like they can just train them on these pre-engineered molecules. They actually are going in the blind. And uh, let's take cancer, for instance, because that's the biggest role for dogs right now in this kind of work. Um, they are they are presenting the dogs with samples of the cancer in 
um, not actually in the tissue itself from people, but in blood, actually in plasma, um, in sweat, in urine, in you know, bodily fluids, pretty much, or skin. Yeah, skin sweat sections. is a big one. Sweat is a big one, yes. And they, they take sweat swabs and um, a breath, exhaled breath is another one. And they they don't, the, the people doing the research don't know what it is, but they have the dogs re- smell enough of this. So the dog finally has an aha moment and says, oh, this is what all these things are in common. They'll usually just be trained on something like plasma. They won't do all the other ones. So one dog will be trained on, let's say, ovarian cancer plasma, which is going on at the University of Pennsylvania. And that dog will then somehow, we still don't know exactly what they're smelling, say, oh, yeah, what they're doing is um, they're, they're saying that it's like asking someone to find Waldo without knowing what Waldo looks like. But once they figure out that all these parts match and they get their little Waldo moment, then they say, oh, yeah, it could be the pattern of the VOCs, how they're put together. Um, they don't. Researchers don't even know if cancer has an overall signature as cancer or if each cancer has its own fingerprint or if it's all of the above. So the hope is that one day dogs will be able to help them learn that. And they're working with the scientists now with um, chemical analysis techniques to find out what these components of cancer are. So GCMS, see if I can get this right, gas chromatography, magnetic spectrometry is... Very good. (laughs) And I can attest you only had to say that once. I know. I actually practiced that one (laughs) because I realized I probably had to explain that. But um, that's being used to ferret out the scents, the smells that the dogs are sniffing. And so the researchers will take a component of the cancer, of of the compounds they think it could be, and they'll give it back to the dogs. Does the dog alert to that? No. Well, maybe it's this. And then the dog alerts to this. They'll take it further. So they're communicating in this beautiful sort of abstract way. And around the world, the goal is not to have dogs at your doctor's office in the back room. Dogs have been very, very good at detecting this with good training, Um, but they're only human, as I like to say. They make mistakes. They have off days. There are are scents that are are masked by other things. So the goal is to have e-noses, electronic noses, to be able to detect cancers early, accurately. Uh, Maybe one day we'll be able to go into our doctor's office and breathe into a little tube for some of these cancers. Um, Or or there are other ways of doing it. Uh, One one MIT scientist is hoping that we will be able to detect cancers on our cell phones. He wants the world, he wants to have 50,000 people uh, enrolled, maybe Google or Amazon or someone can be interested and put this on their phones and the, the one day, and he hopes in about five years, and the phones will always be scenting, sensing the, the chemical makeup of the person, knowing everything the person is doing. Um, and then one day they will have people come in who have cancer and they'll say, oh, this was the scent at this point. This person has this. Let's see if we can extrapolate. So it's, it's something in the future that's pretty hopeful. And a lot of people around the world are, are really hoping the dogs will be able to do this, including me, because I have a family history of ovarian cancer, and that is one of those really hard-to-detect ones um, early enough to treat. So, um, And there are dogs who are, who are sniffing this out as we speak. And to your point about the Parkinson's sniffer, the human Parkinson's sniffer, she detected that odor 
10 years before he was diagnosed with Parkinson's. Right. Yes. Yes. And so um, we don't give ourselves enough credit for being able to smell well as humans. Some I smell, I can smell a lot of things. My husband, he has no nose essentially. So um, I, I'm credited with being sort of the, the nose in the, the family, yeah, the nose <laughs> of the family, the nose nose. Um, but, but we, we see dogs. Uh, there's a lot of there are a lot of anecdotes out there from people who say their dogs have sniffed out their cancers and um, and have done it early enough to save their lives. Let's talk about Baby Boo. That's the dog that first appeared in the scientific literature. Yes. Baby Boo was this little dachshund mix who was adopted into a family in England. And um, one day, she's a very gentle, sweet dog. She would tend to the other two little dogs in the family. There was one dog who was a kleptomaniac. She would just wander around the village and go into the store and pilfer something and come home with it. Well, you got to love her. <laughs> she's great. <laughs> I think that was uh, there's Lucy Lou, I think her name was. So there's Baby Boo, Lucy Lou, and Frisky Foo or something. And um, she was a gentle soul. And one day... She, her person was doing some yard work and she just launched into her leg and started tearing at it, biting at it. And, um, her, the woman could not see what was, what it was, but, uh, she, she showed it to someone at work and said, the woman who had worked at a skin uh, cancer center, amazingly said, you need to get that checked out. So she did. And it was a melanoma. And it was caught early enough so that she didn't, they could get rid of it. Everything was okay. But it was at the stage where it was probably about to start spreading. So the dog saved her life, she thinks. And the scientist who uh, put this paper together for The Lancet uh, also said the same thing. It was a, it was actually just a letter to the editor in The Lancet in 1989. And it was this three paragraphs about sniffer dogs in the, in the doctor's office or something. And it was the first... The first uh, mention that we know of of a dog being able to do this kind of work in the scientific literature. And that slowly set off more thinking about what dogs might be able to do. And eventually you got to write this book. <laughs> yeah, lucky me. <laughs> Thank you, baby boo. Yeah. You're listening to Tech Nation. I'm Moira Gunn. My guest today is journalist Maria Godovich. You may know her from her books, including Soldier Dogs and Secret Service Dogs. She's here today with Dr. Dogs, how our best friends are becoming our best medicine. Now, if we're talking about ovarian cancer, we're talking about something that's inside your body. Yeah. You know, there's no, it's not melanoma, it's not on the skin. And yet all cancers, they, you know, their cells do die. They last a lot longer, you know, building up to a tumor as an example, uh, but they do die and they break apart and they go through your blood and they're all kinds of ways in your system that they get out of your system and so they would be detected externally. Is that basically the kind of thing we're looking at as yeah. well with ovarian cancer? You said that really well um, and that's exactly what it is and they've they, as, I, as I mentioned before, uh, they're just they're doing plasma work, so it's just a, a portion of the blood. It's not even the whole blood, um, and the the plasma that the dogs are are a research are, are working with the researchers on isn't necessarily even just straight plasma. They're trying to take it down to the smallest fraction of what a dog can do, seeing how low it can go. So they're diluting it with saline. So right now, I think it's about 
uh, they, they would take a drop of the plasma of someone with ovarian cancer and a drop of saline, mix them together and take one drop from that. And the dog can alert to that. It's amazing. Among, among samples of, um, of people with ovarian tumors that are not malignant uh, and, and just random samples of other things on this, it, what they do is they go, the dogs go around a wheel, a scent wheel, and it looks, it looks kind of like a little carousel. And there are ports and the cancer is in one of the ports or sometimes it's in none of the ports because it's really important that a dog doesn't necessarily think, okay, got to get one every time and gets rewarded for not alerting because otherwise the dog is going to make it up. Dogs triple, like to cheat. Triple dog blind. Yeah. Scientific <laughs> studies. They're double it's really, blind. It's really hard triple. to get these double blind, but yeah, <laughs> it is kind of triple blind. And um, and there are so many factors in these studies, actually. they There's the clever Hans effect. So if someone is in the room at the same time, even if the person doesn't know which of these ports has the cancer sample, um, they might inadvertently clue the dog to something that they might think where they might think it is. So the person in the best case scenario is not in the room or just behind a screen that the dog can't see. So the dog goes around and usually the typical alert is sitting and staring or just staring. Sometimes they paw at it, but that's discouraged. And and when they are when they get it right, they get lots of praise and a toy or treat. I just definitely want to get it out of the way that the dogs in these research settings are not beagles locked in cages. They are happy dogs, usually pet dogs, who come in for fun a few hours a day or every other day or something, and they do their job. They get treats and toys and praise. So they have to be pre-trained to, here's what an alert looks like. Because only in cartoons does the dog actually kind of say something. You know? <laughs> yeah, yeah, no, absolutely. They are very highly trained uh, by the time they get to this kind of work. And they, they keep on training because it's easy to forget. It's easy to get distracted. And there are all kinds of confounding factors with these samples as well because the person putting it together, the person who takes the sample might be shedding skin onto it. Who knows what? So they yes. have to be really careful. And they're learning as time goes by what to do, what not to do. So some of the studies that have already been done may not have been done as well as they would have been today. So they're they're redoing studies. And I, I went to Japan, I went to England, I went to the Netherlands, I, so the, around the U.S., watching these dogs at work. And every one of them seems to love what they do. And they're really, really good at it. The early part of what you just said, I'm reminded of the work on identifying Neanderthal DNA because for one reason or another, we kept contaminating the samples. And it wasn't until we got something that's like, it's not human. <laughs> right. <laughs> it's, it's not it. We are all over the place without meaning to be, which is what makes us easy to track for dogs. And so that's exactly the, that's the same issue that is at work here. Now let's talk about the experiment going on in the town of Kaniyama in Japan. Why is that place a place to experiment with dogs. This bucolic, gorgeous town about a five-hour Shinkansen bullet train ride north of Tokyo, unfortunately, is the site of the highest rate of stomach cancer in all of Japan, that, that district, that area is. And the, the town leaders of Kaneyama are very forward-thinking and are always trying to get their town out, out there and they it's it's a beautiful little town but they 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 want to embrace tourists but yet keep it 
as as lovely as it is. And uh, one day, uh, a researcher from Tokyo came in, uh, Masao Miyashita, came in and uh, gave a talk about all the remarkable things dogs can do. And he was already uh, working with dogs to detect a couple of kinds of cancers down in the Tokyo area. And the mayor loved this idea, and they talked after the talk and decided to tried to do a screening in this town. Now, a screening is a lot different than a study. It's a study, a screening study. This is actually the first real-life example of this because it's in in two studies, they tried to do um, completely blind, did, is there even cancer in this? And because the dogs weren't getting rewarded, they got, got confused and they stopped alerting or they were alerting to the wrong thing. So that's what you're facing in a real screening situation, which is why dogs are not going to be in the back room of your doctor's office. Another reason, um, because they won't be getting we don't know when to reward them. So it was a big challenge to take this on. And there were about a thousand participants of the 3000 people in this town. Um, they gave urine samples and the dogs, they they were frozen and um, in at the university where uh, Dr. Miyashita works, and then they were shipped to the dogs, and the dogs were tasked with telling which one of these, which of these had cancer and which didn't. Uh, in the end, there were these mitigating factors that we've discussed. There were there were some problems with the size. The, they they didn't really open the test tubes. They were really tiny, so the dogs were having a harder time detecting it. But mostly, it the problem was that they the the rewards they, the reward setup wasn't there. They didn't know. They were confused because people didn't know if the people had cancer. And uh, there was some detection certainly of people, but they they had missed a couple of people. This was for stomach cancer, but. These dogs had been trained on other types of cancer as well, so which is which is quite unusual. They're usually specialists. So uh, the the end result actually has led to the samples being used for GCMS. So they are GCMS being, is uh, gas chromatography, magnetic spectro- spectrometry. I made her do oh, it twice. I'm so embarrassed. <laughs> <laughs> I didn't quite nail well, it that it. time. That's it. To an interview is all you got to do. You're done. done. Um, So they, it wasn't, uh, it wasn't really the the success that the town had hoped it would be. But they're following the people in the study. They did it for three years, and they're continuing to follow the people. And um, one of the people did end up um, having there 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 was a stomach cancer, a cervical cancer, a couple of other cancers, and the other people, the dogs said had cancer who didn't have cancer that would be worrisome of course they are they are being followed up and their treatment i believe is being offered for free their their um their tests i should say and they're being told not to worry because there are all kinds of factors that could have gone into these positive studies so it just it was really helpful to find out that this is not how we're going to be screening the world for cancer well baby boo as wonderful as he or she was I don't remember. I guess it was a girl. It was a girl. It was a girl. Well, as wonderful as Baby Boo was, she was no pedigree dog. Are some dogs better than others? The most important aspect of a dog for this kind of work is the drive for a reward. They can be a little tiny mutt. They can be a purebred Belgian Malinois or Labrador Retriever. But if they are not into getting rewarded, if they aren't into food treats or playing with a toy, they're probably not going to be very good at this work because it's all about the reward in 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 the laboratory. It's about getting that treat, getting that ball, and they have to have a high 
drive for this, just as with the military dogs I've I've written about, they need to have that same thing, that reward driven wanting to work. And so I've I've written in my book about little tiny fluffy dogs who do this kind of work and a lot of Labrador retrievers. They say the longer the nose, the more olfactory receptors and the more uh, the brain is attuned to the sense. And yeah, I haven't seen any pugs, I have to say. But but generally if a dog has that drive for a reward uh, the dog can do and, and is focused. I've been speaking with journalist Maria Godavage. Her book is Dr. Dogs, How Our Best Friends Are Becoming Our Best Medicine. We'll talk more after a break. Podcasts of Tech Nation are available on NPR One, iTunes, Stitcher, and other podcast syndication outlets. Coming up in the second half of our show, why those popular genetic tests that so many of us take won't tell us that we absolutely will get a medical condition, but rather it's the probability that we will develop one. Don't they know? Stay with us. listening to Tech Nation, I've been speaking with Maria Godavage about doctor dogs, how our best friends are becoming our best medicine. I think my dog could actually do this. He's Gus and he is a yellow lab. And um, I'm actually just training him to do some scent work and, in my house just to see, just because dogs love working with their noses. And they it love gives them working. To do. They There's love like Dogs working. need jobs. They do. They really need jobs. And if you have to make a job for your dog, go ahead and do it. I've been doing that all along ever since I've been writing these books. And it gives them something to do. They they want this. They love this. And, and with the and the other thing I want to say is that the training is all positive. It's very reward driven. It's very, if the dog, let's say the dog misses or sniffs something that's not cancer, the dog just doesn't get the bounce of the ball. That's it. They don't get criticized. They don't get, uh, they, they don't get yelled at. Um, they're, they're just not getting the no, reward. No reward for you. Yep, that's it. <laughs> <laughs> no reward for you. Now, of course, we've been talking a lot about cancer, but the the number one cause of death in the United States is heart disease. Can they detect 
cardiac events or pre-cardiac events? Yeah, this is not work that has been done in a, in a research setting yet, but anecdotally, yes. they There are some sensitive dogs who have been able to tell their people ahead of time that something's about to hit the fan. And maybe many more dogs do this, but we're not listening. Yeah. So um, it, it, the trick is to maybe be more attuned with our dogs. But there was a, a man I interviewed for the book who's who who was getting kind of breathless walking. He was living on a boat. He's walking up the stairs of the boat, doing work on the boat. And his dog started hovering around him a lot more. And then one day started press, she started pressing her nose against his inner arm as if there were and licking it as if there were peanut butter on his inner arm down by his wrist and kept doing that and his heart would start hurting and and this was a pattern that he noticed and it turned out that he was this was angina he had never had angina before and one day the dog started doing this and it was a precursor to a heart attack so the dog was able by virtue of whatever she was detecting something maybe in the bloodstream and that's the closest place that she could get to his his you know arteries veins whatever it was was at his wrist and she was licking that and there was someone else i wrote about in the book whose dog was insisting on turning around during a big hike in Southern California. This is a while back. He was a firefighter. And she'd never done that before. And she was lagging behind and not moving and not wanting to go. And his other dog was up ahead. And finally, he thought she was ill. So he took her back. She led the way back down. And uh, he got home and collapsed from a heart attack and was able to reach the phone. She apparently nudged the phone to him. And she was able to reach, he was able to reach the phone and call 911. And got, they got there just in time to save him. Oh, and these I, I stories, think, these stories. <laughs> and actually, the, the doctor in Japan wants to start researching um, heart disease and dogs. So he may be he may be the first one to start in on this because I think it's it's got such value. And if we can have, I don't know if uh, it would be worth it to have a heart attack detecting dog, but there may be something in there that there's so much potential with dogs. We're just beginning to tap into it. Now, you write about PTSD and seizures and autism, and it's amazing, all the various detection of diabetes, et cetera. Uh, all of these things are, are in your book. I wanted to focus on the psychiatric help that is available, not in diagnosis, so much as in treatment with these dogs. Yeah, Um now, this is where their sense of smell may or may not always have to come into play because anyone who has a dog knows how comforting they can be in times of distress, anxiety. Uh, my dog has always seemed to be able to tell when I'm having an off day and he's hanging out with me more. We don't know if that's because he just loves me and wants me to feel better or if he wants to normalize my behavior. But um, for for people with mental health issues, uh, dogs are becoming sometimes their only life-saving a, a thing in their life because their medications may or may not be working, but the dog is always there for them. They can, a, a lot of people with PTSD now are uh, incorporating dogs into their lives and that's, they, they sometimes get off medication because of the side effects. Now, it's not ever recommended to get a dog and, and get rid of your medication, but this has happened in so many people. The dogs can just be an addition to the current treatment, but the dogs are able to sense oftentimes when a veteran or someone with PTSD is going to be having a panic attack or anxiety 
and we don't really necessarily know how. It could be body language. There has been, uh, there's someone in Indiana, a researcher in Indiana, who has a refrigerator and freezer stocked with emotions. These are skin and sweat samples. I mean, sweat samples from the skin and also saliva samples that are from people who are experiencing great anxiety, panic, anger, fear. And she she uh, divvies them up and says which of these emotions there are. And she will train the dogs on these emotions so that then when they're finally matched with their person, uh, they are able to really sense it. So in addition to maybe the body language or other factors that we may not be able to sense as humans, the dogs are right on it and they'll be able to lean in, literally lean into their person and give them comfort. There's something about the weight of the dog, the companionship. Maybe they'll put their head on the person's lap. The, um, they'll encourage, the, they'll sort of shoo the person away and encourage them to get away from the crowd sometimes. And there's something about the dogs that is just so in, calming and the same with uh, people with autism the dogs are seemingly able to sense when there's for a child about to be a meltdown uh, and they're there for that child during that and they, so that kind of dog you do have to have a different temperament someone who can really withstand the rigors of screaming when this is going on and the tension so they're very special dogs for for that but uh, but ptsd anxiety there are so many people as you know with anxiety now and there are many of these dogs being trained to help people with anxiety in, in much the same way but also um helping them get out of stores if they need to or or i've heard people that i know have said it just became too much i had to get out of there yeah yeah exactly and and the sometimes it's so overwhelming that someone cannot figure out how to get out of there a crowded store a concert and uh a dog can oftentimes just sniff their way back. They can get them out of the situation or get them out of that crowded aisle or whatever it takes. And, um, you know, and sometimes it's just just a dog being a dog, someone to talk to and hug. It, that's all it takes. It doesn't even have to be a specially trained dog. There's a, a woman I wrote about in uh, Florida who... Oh, she moved to Florida. She's she has schizophrenia, and when she was a teenager, her parents did not know that she had been having hallucinations almost since she could talk. She was, she said, she, when she was five or six, they started appearing to her auditory and visual hallucinations, and um, she never told anyone. She thought other people had these, and they were just telling her how awful she was and how she should kill herself. And when she was a teen, um, she she tried to. And uh, this is when her parents just realized what was going on. And they were able to get their pet dog trained to help her. They sent him away for six months to be trained. So when she came back from hospitalization, he was there for her. So all the things I've talked about before with anxiety, stress, he was also able to help her not cut herself anymore. She he would he would jump on her when she would start to cut. So she would stop. But this is my favorite part of the story. It's nothing the dog was trained on, but by virtue of him just being a dog, a friendly, big old, affable Labrador retriever who loves to greet everybody. He would, he loves, he wags, he wants to jump on the person. When she was having her hallucinations with all these bad people, she would realize, wait, he's not greeting them. If he isn't greeting these people, they're not real. And so she was able to separate reality from these horrible hallucinations just by her dog being a friendly dog and by being able to tune into him. Well, of course, you know, the, the technology rolls on. There's talking vests for dogs. 
Yes, they're in the prototype stage right now at Georgia Tech. Researchers there on the FIDO project, and do not ask me the acronym for that. That's an acronym for something. That was that we got the name FIDO, and now we'll figure out what it means. (laughs) Facilitating interaction for something. Um, (laughs) And they are, uh, including Fad Sterner, you've probably um, talked about him on your show before, but he's uh, the Google Glass champion. Uh, He's involved in this research, and they are working with dogs on these vests, and the dogs can dog working dogs are really smart the dogs who work with people are they're smart and savvy and we want to be able to have them be able to communicate with us better they're reaching out to us as much as they can but we will they the researchers want to be able to provide them with a technology that might help this along so the talking vest that's the prototype right now it just has a couple of functions and one of them the one i saw was just asking uh, a pers- asking someone for help. So this would be on on someone who, uh, the dog of someone, say, who has a seizure disorder. And they're out, and let's say the person seized, and there's no one around, and they need help. So the dog, by virtue of a, a, one type of sensor or another, would go up to a person and, like, Lassie, and instead of just, you know, trying to use body language to get the person... Lassie, what's wrong? Yeah. <laughs> and this yeah. person, the, the uh, I have actually a recording of okay. what, what this this sounds like, um, if you would Please like to do. Please do, yes. Okay. My owner needs your attention. Please follow me. So that my owner needs your attention, please follow me. That's Southern, um, and that's a male voice. And they, the researchers were finding in doing their studies that uh, people would prefer, if their dog is going to talk, that they talk in the appropriate gender for the dog and um, and maybe sound kind of like where they're from. So that gentleman was from the South. I imagine if my dog Gus had one, he'd probably sound a little more chill in California. And they'd be like, dude, no, she, <laughs> yeah. she needs help. Get my head together out <laughs> yeah. here. Yeah. <laughs> so uh, these these vests are really in, in very early stages, but there are all kinds of sensors on them, including proximity sensors. And they're trying to work with these sensors so that they're dog proof because they've been crunched by dogs they, because they had bite sensors. They have bite sensors. And sometimes a dog can crunch a little too hard or they have sensors that were drowned when the dog decided to go on a swim. And the proximity sensors, which are what we have in our faucets sometimes, um, the dog is supposed to wipe uh, his nose by the sensor. But sometimes a dog can scratch and sense this off, sets this off. And there is one use of the vest that is actually to call for emergency help. So if the dog, God forbid, does this or walks too close to an object and sets this off, it's sort of the modern day equivalent of crying wolf because you know, you're know you asking for help and it's just because you just happen to walk by a, an object too closely. But the ultimate use of these vests is going to, they, they may have a few different sensors on them. So the dog can tug if the person needs help or might say for someone with diabetes, instead of what's traditionally done today, which the dog has a little brinzel hanging off, which is a, let's say, a cord hanging off the collar, the dog will grab that and stare at the person, which is pretty obvious. But to make it even more obvious, if you're in a crowded place, a party, and the dog, you're not paying attention to your dog, your dog might be able to pull on a sensor and say, uh, you're you're going low uh, with your blood sugar. Let's check this out or something. And so they're going to be this, there's going to be this ability. Or you you may have a seizure soon. Let's let's go sit down. There's one prototype in the works from Georgia Tech with a child who has autism. And uh, apparently one of the things it says this was after the book came out, but is um, hey you know let's let's go let's go chill out and come pet me. 
because then the the child will pet the dog and the, the anxiety that will just sort of dissipate. So there are many uses, but um, and one of them can also be for bomb sniffing dogs to be able to tell us if this is something that's stable or something that's you better really watch out for. So there are all kinds of potential uses for this. And also at Georgia Tech, they're working on touchscreen technology for dogs um, and also in Budapest and Vienna. It's something that, that we may, who knows, maybe we will all see this with our pets one day. But in the working dog world, this could be really handy. They're trying to figure out the icons and the colors and the sizes and the shapes of the icons. And the the one at Georgia Tech right now is really big. It's way too big, but they, they actually want to get them down to a smaller touchscreen size. And uh, slobber was a, definitely a confounding factor, which <laughs> they apparently worked oh, around. Some, yeah. Somehow they got through to it, a special screen. I don't know. But there, will, there are all these things that they have to deal with, with dogs using touchscreens. But uh, they're hoping that one day they'll be able to, um, in, in laboratory settings or research settings, say, oh, there's this much of this disease or it's this type of cancer. Or they maybe, you know, it's hard enough for humans to use those sliders on touch screens. Maybe there's a way dogs can use it to say, oh, there's this much. It's it's this far along. There's This is a really strong scent because right now dogs don't have any ability to tell us in the cancer wheel how much of this is in there. So um, now maybe with this touchscreen technology, they'll be able to do this. And maybe one day dogs will be able to talk to us through touchscreen technology. I kind of like my dog just listening to my stories <laughs> and not being able to tell them to anyone else and just silently affirming everything that I say. <laughs> so I'm, I'm kind of well, That's just you, yeah. Maria. Yeah. <laughs> of course, just sure me. I know. Everybody else wants to complicate their lives. <laughs> yeah, well, and the dog's talking. Looking back, do we really want that technology? Yeah. To dog analyzing you or saying, or, or even just being able to say, "I want that. I want that." When you're eating or something. So, but it could be it could be kind of fun. So we'll see where that science takes us. Well, the diabetic alert dogs, as an example, uh, whether your sugar is going high or it's going low, you know, they're sleeping in the same room with you, and they wake up. Yes, it's some of them do. Now, not all dogs wake up when uh -huh. it, and, and, you know, by the time they discover which dogs do this and which don't, it's too late. They're still great by day, but a lot of dogs do wake up. It's kind of like if you wake up at the smell of bacon or coffee, you know, you might be sleeping and then all of a sudden, boom. But to a dog, let's say a low blood sugar is a lot more important than bacon is to us. Although bacon is pretty important to a lot of people these days, the the scent of of this diabetic low means mm, yes, it means a treat. But after a while, it means a lot more than that. I'm sure that dogs can tell that they're doing their person a lot of good. They get so much praise, and they can tell they're helping the person immensely by doing this. So I'm hoping one day the dogs will uh, will lead to a technology that maybe they they won't be needed, but uh, they'll still be our companions. I do have a sense that all these engineers out there and all these scientists are going, hmm, hmm, what can be done here? And then when we understand it, of course, that's when we can build new technology and carry it on, as well as, you know, we're like all the simple things. Here's one volatile organic what's the compound thing? compound see i that's i deserve that <laughs> putting you through that um there's one and here's another and here's another that very simple first step is getting more and more complex we're seeing that natural arc of technology and science and we really early days yet but it's really really taking off it's exciting and there's so much potential out there it's just a matter of i think we need to advance a little more on the biological side and then that will be married with engineering 
um, in the not-too-distant future. Maria, thank you so much. I hope you come back. See thank you. Again. That was fun. Bring Gus. Yeah. Okay. Cool. My guest today is Maria Godovich. The book is Dr. Dogs, How Our Best Friends Are Becoming Our Best Medicine. It's published by Dutton. I'm Moira Gunn. You're listening to Tech Nation. If you've ever had your genes sequenced, the report tells you the probability that you will develop a specific disease or condition. Some people with these genes get it, and some people don't. I asked Dr. Tara Nickerson, the chief business officer of Mays Therapeutics, do we know why that is? That's a really important question, Moira, and it's definitely one that Mays is looking to help answer. So we know that there's disease-causing mutations in genes. However, you could look at a number of people with those same disease-causing mutations, and as you point out, some get the disease, maybe severely, some get mild disease or no disease at all. So we know that there's other genes in the genome that influence this clinical outcome for patients. These are genetic modifiers, and this is what Mays is going after, identifying genetic modifiers, because they really confer a form of natural protection to those individuals who have disease-causing mutations. So by finding those genetic modifiers, we can replicate that therapeutic benefit by creating a therapy that essentially has the same effect as the genetic modifier. And this is how Mays is looking to really help people with severe diseases. Now, can you tell me the kinds of things that would be a genetic modifier? Sure. I could give you one example that's um, something that we've looked at in the company and, and want to replicate for ourselves. There's a disease called spinal muscular atrophy, or SMA. SMA is caused by a mutation in a gene called SMN1 that causes lower levels of SMN1, and that leads to neuromuscular deficiency in those patients. But there's a rare mutation in a different gene, a genetic modifier, called SMN2. Those individuals end up having more of the SMN2 gene, and it actually protects them from the disease. So pharmaceutical companies have seen this naturally occurring insight and created a therapy that replicates that effect. So the therapy will increase SMN2 levels and is very beneficial for those SMA patients. If these are your sets of genes over here, and we can do this over here, it will act as a protectant. That's right. And the interesting thing is, in today's environment, there's genetic information that's been collected around the world. And this is really powerful for Mays and other companies to really understand genetic modifiers of disease and then how they could have a benefit as a new medicine. Now, it occurs to me with three billion pairs of nucleotides making up each of our DNA, and then we have all these genetic modifiers just for one person. That's a lot of data. That is a lot of data. And I think the reason that Maze is really being created as a company today, um, while genetic modifiers have been known for decades, their existence has been known for decades, and one of our founders really thought about this when he was in medical school. It's like There are other genes that are creating... Um, variability in disease. And we know they're there, 
but we had no tools or ability to really look for them or understand them. But over the past few decades, there's been important advances in a number of areas. One is the ability to really sequence human genome data quickly, cheaply, so that, you know, where it used to take the first human genomes, I think, took over 10 years to sequence. Now we do it on a daily basis, and there's millions of of genomes that have been sequenced. That's one area. The other is tools that we use to apply functional genomics. So these are laboratory-based systems that we can use to interrogate cellular genomes. And these are really, this is really important information that needs to be combined with the human genetic information to really interrogate and ask questions and understand the roles of these genes. And then the third area that makes all this possible for us are the computational um, advances that have been made. So with cloud computing power available today, these tools are essential for us to be able to really ask any questions of these significantly huge data sets, as you pointed out. Well, I think people understand the human genome, or at least the concept of it. Uh, they understand computation in the cloud. That means you can compute as long and hard as you want. But in the middle here, that cellular genome, what are you talking about? Yeah, so functional genomics is an important tool that companies like Mays is employing. And it, it's really a number of different tools that we have available in our toolbox. Includes things like CRISPR technologies that allow you to really ask questions at a single cell level where you can perturb a particular gene to see what kind of effect that may have. And then you sequence the, the genome of a single cell Think how powerful that is when you're trying to ask a question that's coming out of a human genome, but then you really want to understand how it's acting and where it's acting. So functional genomics is an area that Maze will be applying to help understand these human genetic insights. So if I get the concept correctly, each of us have our DNA, the same DNA essentially, in every cell of our body. Let's say we were looking for my cells. They're excellent examples of cells, in case you didn't know, Tara. <laughs> so if we were querying my cells to figure out what's going on, you could take my cells, you could take one cell at a time and qu query it in relation to uh, particular responses to things and what's there, what isn't there, just because you want to really look at that and understand it with respect to potential therapeutics or actual therapeutics. That's right. And even though we have many different cells in our body, you know, the fact is your heart cells will look a little different than your liver cells that will look a little different than your brain cells. So it's really important for us to be able to look at single genes in the right cellular system that is relevant for the disease that we're trying to investigate and help develop new medicines for. Well, I got plenty of cells. I can give you any you want, <laughs> Tara. But the real question is, is you got to start with the right set of cells. If you have a particular number of people, for instance, who all have the same condition, studying their cells compared to, a, say, a big base of people who don't have the condition may, in fact, pop up in that computational area. Ooh. Everybody who has this has all these other characteristics in common. Now we're starting to make some movement. So um, my real question to you is, how do you get all this data? Where does all the data come from? 
Well, there have been really important initiatives around the world for collecting human genetic information. One example is in the UK. They, um, the country started an initiative called the UK Biobank, where residents of the UK have contributed their blood sample, which was then genotyped. And they also share information about the diseases they have, the clinical conditions, you know, when they visit the doctor, some of their symptoms and and things are recorded so that all that information, and this is happening in countries around the world, so that we can really understand about different populations, but also about specific diseases where patients come in and um, then all that information can be pooled together so that companies like ours and other research efforts can ask these important questions. And the reason countries are doing this is because they understand ultimately to really have Im- an impact on the health system, on individual diseases, that this power of this information is really going to be critical to be able to make these advances. And we have to also remember that while here in the United States, we're a mix of, it seems like everything, there are a number of areas in the world where the people have lived there for generations. There's not much of a mix. We truly can understand who they are separate from a mixture of people from many different places. That's right. And those populations are actually really important and useful for asking certain genetic questions. So one good example of that is in Finland. There's an organization called FinGen, and our one of our scientific founders, Mark Daly, is the co-director of FinGen. Um, they've been running an initiative to collect information on specific diseases within that country and the population. And as you alluded to, the importance of that is that the history of Finland is such that there's a more homogenous population and a bottleneck effect from founders who came to that country and lived there for many, many generations. This enables us to ask questions about very rare alleles that end up getting enriched in these populations. And that gives us really powerful tools to do genetic analysis. And a lot of those people out there don't know what an allele is. (laughs) (laughs) One part of the gene that's important for understanding how, essentially trying to understand how to track these gene-causing mutations across populations. Well, Tara, this has been terrific. I hope you come back. Keep us updated. Thank you so much, Maura. It's a pleasure to be here. Dr. Tara Nickerson is the Chief Business Officer of Maze Therapeutics. More information is available at mazetx.com. That's maze, M-A-Z-E, mazetx.com. For Tech Nation, I'm Moira Gunn. Tech Nation and its regular segment, Biotech Nation, are produced at the studios of KQED-FM in San Francisco. Executive producer is Matt Gardner. The director of technical production is Monte Carlos. And audio engineers include Howard Gelman, Seal Muller, and Larry Upton. Our theme music was composed by Ann Nocktrieb-Zessiger and Robert Powell, with title creation provided by Name Lab Incorporated of San Francisco. 
Program information and Internet audio is available on the web at technation.com. TechNation and Biotechnation are productions of TechNation Media. I'm Paul Lancourt.